Hey everybody, welcome to Acme Podcast Incorporated. I am Laser J. I fucked up. We already recorded the entire episode, and then I realized I didn't record any audio on my end. Um, because I'm an idiot. Uh, so this is a truncated introduction. I'm Laser J. I'm joined as always by the special good birthday boy. Hey, it's Kai. Yeah, so, Kai, this is your birthday episode. It's not your birthday just yet, but it's the birthday month, and I wanted to put a little more space between another Venture episode and the last Venture episode, uh, and you were gracious enough to agree to do your birthday episode earlier than your birthday. Yeah, it's as of as of this release of this episode. It's not technically my birthday, but, you know. Yeah. Uh... So yeah, why don't you tell us what we're watching on, for your birthday? For my birthday, we are going to watch two of my favorite movies. We're going to be talking about, again, <laughs> uh, The Last Unicorn and The Secret of Nymph. Lucky for you people, I like these movies a lot, so I don't mind talking about them again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, man. It's all right. It happens. D- you know what I'm more sad about? What's that? We we lost my good my dog farted. Oh no! That's the true <sighs> loss. During the recording that never recorded on my end, oh. my dog let one go, and it was just so bad. And I had such a good raw reaction to it, and it was going to be the preview for this episode, and now it's gone. Oh, that's that's the true loss. <sighs> yeah, I mean, listen, man. I lost. We can hit all the same points we talked about on the thing, but you're not getting a week not... segment or uh, our uh, Bad Batch spoiler cast. You're just not going to get that. We'll do Bad Batch for the show one day, and that'll be it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe when season two comes out. Yeah, I think that would be good. Like, right before season two starts. Yeah, yeah for sure. Do a catch-up. And then, uh, um, we. I don't mind reiterating what we were talking about with the, the movie. So. Yeah, because they're, they're real good. Uh, it's my first time seeing either of them, uh, mm-hmm. and neither of them are movies I knew existed until I was already an adult. Yeah, even though I was like in the perfect age group to be renting them from Blockbuster oh, when I was a kid. God, yeah, no, I rented The Last Unicorn a shit ton when I was a kid. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it. it. Yeah, I. It must have. Man, I tell you, the only movies I rented between the ages of like. Five and ten, so for five years, I guess, were uh, Rockadoodle, Cats Don't Dance, a Goofy movie, and uh, this one VHS of uh, Robotech. I think that's basically it. <laughs> I rented a lot of Godzilla and Gamera movies, and. Um... Ninja Turtle VHSs and Thundercats VHSs and nice shit and stuff like that. Yeah, but last year Unicorn... once I hit ten, I hmm? sorry, not God. I was just gonna say once I hit ten, I spread out more. And that's when I saw like Ghostbusters. And stuff. Yeah, I used to own. I think I still own my copy of Nim on VHS, but I used to own the copy of Unicorn on VHS too. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, I would love a anniversary copy of the. DVD, but I because it's got. I was going to buy it. Yeah, because it's got the the director commentary on it, and I think Beagle is there. 
talking about it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing it on sale in Target around the same time that there was a uh, Tales of the Earthsea DVD for sale there. Oh, right. The Ghibli Tales of Earthsea. Yeah. The one that's... I remember... By uh, Goro Miyazaki. Yeah. Yeah. But I never ended up buying either of them, so... Yeah. Uh, But anyway. Anyway. Uh... We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to get into The Secret of Nim. We'll see you then. And welcome back. All right, let's get into The Secret of Nim from 1982, directed by Don Bluth, uh, with story adaptation to uh, by Don Bluth, John Pomeroy, Gary Goldman, and Will Finn, based on the novel by Robert C. O'Brien. Also, Ken Anderson is uncredited as a writer on the film. Uh, starring Derek Jacoby, Elizabeth Hartman, Arthur Mallet, Dom DeLuise, Hermione Baddeley, Shannon Doherty, Will Wheaton, Jody Hicks, Ian Freed, uh, John Carradine, Peter Strauss, Paul Shainer, uh, Tom Hatton, Lucille Bliss, Aldo Ray, and yeah, that's basically it. Okay. Yeah, a lot of... Uh... Oh, oh, and yeah. uh, music by America. The no, band that's, America. That, no, 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 no. That's that's Last Unicorn. That's Last Unicorn. God damn it. Oh, I got so excited. I'm so excited to talk about America. You're so uh. excited to talk about America. No, but the music in this film was um, composed by uh, uh, J- Jerry, Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah. Um, Jerry Goldsmith uh, is a really prolific composer he worked on a lot of um uh the spielberg movies uh he mm. compo- he fucking composed jurassic park yeah like i thought the title was john john uh, williams um yeah the title oh no he posed he composed um lost world jurassic park ah, also. Okay. he also composed gremlins um he did a lot of uh music for the Star Trek movies, uh, Rambo, L.A. Confidential, Congo, Logan's Run, Planet of the Apes, uh, Poltergeist, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This was the first movie he ever worked on that was um, animated, though. Yeah. Oh, he did it. Oh, he did the. Uh, he uh, did the Universal logo. Oh wow! Dun uh, dun 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 dun, boom boom. Dun 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 dun. Do 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 Done. Oh, he also shares um music credits uh with uh Matthew Wilder and Zave Zappel for Mulan. No. So that's neat. I love the Universal logo. I'm sorry. No, you're. Oh, also did some music for Rambo. Yeah, Rambo the video game too. <laughs> that, for better or for worse. I've never actually them. played the Rambo video game, so I really don't know. Yeah, he also did the Mummy. Yeah. With, with um, Brendan, the Brendan Fraser Mummy. He was the conductor for the orchestra on the Thirteenth Warrior. Yeah. The so yeah, pretty prolific. Uh, yeah. Composer for sure. And this is our first time talking about fucking Don Bluth. 
Yeah. For Blues. Um, and we're... You know what? I was going to say I'm, I'm repeating myself, but that's going to be this entire segment. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, um, the, the, it's interesting with these two films um, that I have... When it comes to Nim, I have way more to say about it on the production, making of, who made it, etc. And let's talk about what the actual movie itself, characters, plot. And then the unic- with Last Unicorn, I have way more to say about the other. Like, yeah. There's some interesting stuff about The Last Unicorn in terms of production, but most of the stuff I have to say about it is stuff related to characters and story. Yeah, so um, let, let's try to structure this like we did when we did it the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give like my, my basic thoughts since it was my first time seeing it, and then you can just go ham. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Um, we can bounce off of each other. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, uh, I, liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, I'd like to start with a things that I think could have been improved, yeah. uh, which is I, I really dislike how focused it was on Miss Brisby's... Miss Brisby was all centered around her husband rather than her. Or the way the world treated her was more focused around her husband, which, I mean, that that is a valid experience. That That is an experience a lot of people face, but I, I like seeing fiction that does no i get it yeah like that that's an experience a lot of people have yeah um sit in the shadow of other people particularly women and their husband yeah exactly um it it would have been a lot it would have been nice if it was more focused on just her, her. You know, she doesn't even have a first name. Yeah. Although you did, um, in the original recording, tell me that fans gave yes. her a name. Yes, because uh, the actress who played her, uh, Elizabeth uh, Hartman, Hartman uh, no relation to Phil Hartman, um, took her life shortly after this film came out, and this was her last on-screen appearance. Uh, well, not even on-screen, but her first film appearance. No. Um, and uh, they've started to refer to her as Elizabeth Brisby. Uh, what's, a, yeah. what's a pretty name? Yeah. I think it works for her. Yeah. Um, what were the... Uh, I know there was some other stuff that you didn't particularly care for. I feel like a lot of characters needed more development. Yeah, and that that's that's pretty much a common theme in both of these movies. Yeah, such as the uh, crux of having to adapt a book. Yeah. Sometimes I, it just, you know. Yeah, I wish Dragon was more of a credible threat. Yeah. Uh, or like they had spent more time, like they they introduce him as a threat, and then he's never really a proper threat. Yeah. I At think... any point. I think what they could have done instead of having Jenner be the center of the the conflict at the end is you could have Dragon show up. I don't, but then that would kind of interfere with the whole plot of drugging the cat to like escape. So, eh. 
Yeah, I mean, they could have... The easy answer is the cat talks. Mm. And the cat, because all these other animals are talking, so why not? Yeah, why not, yeah. And then also, you play off, you know, cats are fussy eaters. Mm. Like, oh no, you think I couldn't smell there was something in my food? You think I'm a rube? Yeah, and then instead of dragging Dragon, they end up, like, killing him, and that's what, yeah. yeah or driving him off. Driving him off, like, the you do the amulet thing, and yeah. something, something, insert here, yeah. Yeah, because you just been... need, well? you just need something to break the mechanism moving the, the brick. Yeah, for sure, like, it could have, um. And that could be Dragon. That could, that, yeah, for sure, you didn't need Jenner, because, like, I, I mentioned this. That Jenner is a character in the book, but he's not a villain. He's just like yeah. a guy. But Bluth, I guess, thought the movie needed a villain. You know. And I guess the idea that a cat and it's the main villain in a movie about mice and rats is too on the nose. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Because I mean, he would eventually. But the funny thing is, he would eventually do that in American Tale. Yeah. You know, you know, uh, different mediums. Mm. You know, they're, they're they're not doing the same story. You know, they're not they're, just because they're about mice. Uh, doesn't mean that they're. Yeah, um, American Tale is far less subtle about what it's trying to say. Oh yeah, it's the the the, the story about immigrant Jews. Yeah, it's the only animated movie my dad ever wanted to watch because he instantly related to the character of Bival and he saw his father in the in Bival's dad. Yeah, and be- he saw his older sister in Bival's sister. And yeah, because yeah. they are they are mice from the old country. Yeah, but uh, we'll we'll eventually talk. We'll about get America. there one day. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about American Tale. Um, I don't, I mean, we'll probably talk about it. I think we mentioned talking about it with either the Great Mouse Detective or the Rescuers sequel, one of the two. I think I prefer to do Rescuers sequel because I kind of want to do uh, the Great Mouse Detective with um, Sherlock Hound. Yeah, I can get behind that. I've yeah. always wanted to watch a Sherlock Hound, especially because Miyazaki directed quite a bit of yeah. the, the show. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, in terms of, like, um, uh, since we're trying to do this like we did before, uh, since I have more to say about the production and trivia and stuff, I'm just going to say my piece about the movie itself. And that's, um, unless you had, unless you wanted to say something else. Um, I think I said everything I had to really say. Okay. So, go off, my dude. The... The one thing that I always really liked about this movie is Mrs. Brisby as a character. Yes. She's a very, especially for the time that this movie came out, even even now, honestly, she's a very non-traditional protagonist. Um, in a lot of fantasy films, especially of this time, you had stuff like Crawl, Conan the Barbarian, um, uh, freaking Excalibur, etc., uh, etc., there were films about chosen heroes and big, strong, beefy guys with swords. Um, but Mrs. Brisby is none of those things. She's just a mom, and she's just trying to save her kid. And I really like yeah. that. 
Yeah. And that the the message of the film at the end with the with the the amulet is that she has true courage because throughout the entire film, even to the very end, she is terrified of everything around her, but continues to try and do the right thing. Which I really liked. Um, and I think this is my second favorite Dom DeLuise performance in a Don Bluth film because he's kind of in every Don Bluth movie. He's right? in a lot of them. He's in a lot of them. He's in this one. He's in All Dogs Go to Heaven. He's in American Tale, both one and two. Yeah, Tiger. Tiger, and he's, unfortunately, he's in control of Central Park. Unfortunately. Yeah. If he were alive when Anastasia came out, he they probably would have had him be played, to have him play, uh, yeah, he would have been the big guy. Yeah, he would have been the big guy. He would have been, uh, I think it was Boris. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. I love Dom DeLuise. I, 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 this isn't the first time he's come up on this show, but I just love him so much. Yeah, Dom DeLuise is a girl. He has a big, he's a certain energy that I really like. Yeah. It, it you get Dom DeLuise because you want Dom DeLuise. Like yeah. he, he brings, with the exception of one movie, he brings basically the same energy to every role. Yeah. Um. That, for those interested, that one is, uh, Vessel Whorehouse in Texas. Uh, yeah. Very different energy in that. Uh, very good musical with Dolly Parton and, uh, Burt Reynolds. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think my first. Wait, hold, am I? Is that Burt Reynolds? I don't. I don't want to get that wrong. It is Burt Reynolds. No, no, no. But I mean, I think my favorite Burt Reynolds movie is uh, Smokey and the Bandit. Oh yeah, that's Burt Reynolds. Okay, I was just making sure. Yeah, uh, I, I think mine's a toss-up between Cannonball Run and Hooper. I've never actually seen either of those. Cannonball Run is a. Oh. Can I just go on a tan- Cannonball Run tangent? I, we're, dude, there's nothing stopping us. Cool. Okay. Cannonball, have you ever seen the movie Rat Race? Yes. It's basically Rat Race, but in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, where the the goal is every year there's an illegal cross-country automobile race where the whole point is to get from the East Coast to the West Coast within a certain amount of time. And yeah. it's just, uh, it's got Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr. as a team on it. Uh, Burt Reynolds has teamed up with Dom DeLuise. Um, and their gimmick, everyone has a gimmick. Uh, Burt and Dom's gimmick is they're driving an ambulance. So if they need oh. to get a little speed, just hit the sirens and... Oh. Yeah. Uh, and all sorts of wacky lighthearted comedy with Burt Reynolds shenanigans ensue. That sounds great. Yeah. And uh, Hooper is about... (sighs) Hooper, I think, is probably... So you know how John Wick was made by a bunch of stuntmen who just wanted to make their own movie? Yeah. Hooper did that first, I think, in the... Again, like, late 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. Uh... Burt Reynolds started out in the industry as a stuntman, 
and so he was friends with a bunch of stuntmen. Yeah. Uh, and like one of his best friends had a, a movie script about a stuntman, mm-hmm. and no studio wanted it uh, because no one wants to see a movie about a stuntman. I mm-hmm. uh, can't see it, but I just gave an incredulous look of like, "What the fuck are they talking about?" Uh, so Burt Reynolds was like, "All right, fuck you," and he personally raised all the money for the movie to be made, and then he starred in it, and he let his friend direct it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a, it's like a fun, you know, Burt Reynolds kind of sexy comedy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's basically half of what Burt Reynolds does is sexy comedies. Yeah, sexy comedies slash buddy comedies slash like road trip movies. Yeah, and then you you get a couple like action movies like Gator. Yeah, Gator. <laughs> um, or or you get something with a little bit of heart like uh, the Longest Yard, the original one, not the Adam Sandler. Though he's in the Adam Sandler one too. Yeah. Um. Um. Uh. But yeah, sorry. Anyway, no, no, no. The um, there is some interesting stuff about uh, since I was just talking about the Mrs. Brisby and the Deus Ex Machina of the amulet and whatnot, is that the amulet and all the magical elements in this movie are not in the book. Oh, interesting. Um, In fact, I think, yeah, Bluth himself wanted to add some of the mystical elements, and he really, basically he wanted it uh, to, to give, he felt that the he felt that the story in the movie had an energy that um, had a fantastical quality, and he really wanted to emphasize the fantastical quality of the story they were telling. So he wanted to add some more, some very subtle mystical elements into the film. I like that. Uh, and the other thing was is that the amulet was introduced because he felt that the core of the film was about Mrs. Brisby and the book as well, and about her courage. Mm-hmm. and her desire to help her son, and that he wanted to make a physical manifestation of that courage and bravery in the amulet. I like that. So it was like that he he wanted the story to be resolved by Mrs. Brisby's heart and courage. So he made a mystical, physical manifestation of her heart and courage. Okay. And I can get behind that. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's pretty, um, that's pretty cool. I, I like how it, it it's that rare good fusion of both science fiction and fantasy. Uh, science and magic together. Yeah. Um, there's not too much magic and there's not too much science. There's a really good balance yeah. of the two. Yeah. Uh, but, um, I feel like without that magical quality, it would feel like a animal farm for kids, almost. You know what I mean? Yeah, the the subtle mystical elements really add just that just that bit more, which I think is what Don Bluth's intent was. I just had a very cursed thought. Oh yeah, what's that? Shared universe between this and Madagascar. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> uh, the the I just remembered the uh, the chimpanzees. In the lab. I, no, now I'm just imagining freaking cult, or freaking Skipper being like, don't worry, Mrs. Briz will take care of your kids. 
Don't worry, we've got this. Kowalski, options. And then he like pulls out an itinerary on babysitting. Yeah. Uh, anyway. I don't know, Skipper. All right. Anyway, I really liked the Penguin to Madagascar TV show. That was a really fun, stupid show. It was a really fun, stupid show. But um, yeah. The um. But beyond that, the the beyond that stuff, there's not much to like say about the story or character. No, it's it's, it, it's just a good movie. Yeah. Um, we, we did have early uh, last time, the first time we recorded this, we did have an interesting conversation regarding the naming conventions of characters, how it's mostly only the, for the most part, only the characters who come from NIM, the lab, who have first names. Yes. Yeah. And that, that probably factors into why Mrs. Brisby doesn't. Um, yeah. Uh, or and why Auntie Shrew is just Auntie Shrew, mm-hmm. uh, but but that 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 doesn't really work because you got Jeremy the the crow. Yeah. Um. The other thing that's kind of subtle, and this is more uh, dealt with in the book and the book sequels, is that um when Mrs. Briz when Nicodemus asks her to read the book. There's a line that he mentions that Jonathan taught me, although the children are much better than I am. Mm, and that Im- yeah. the implication, and of course, which is um, stated in the book, is that because they're the children of her and Jonathan, is that Jonathan passed on his intelligence to them. Yeah, the the Nim juices. Yeah, the the Nim juices, and every and, and and all the subsequent uh, rats and mice that will be born later on from their line would also have that intelligence. Yeah. Which, Though there'd probably be diminishing returns after a number of generations. Yeah, I don't know how much the sequels get into that. I know that they, they mention that stuff. I'm actually curious, because there are two sequels. Yeah. Um, I know there's a third book. Yeah, there's a third uh, book. I know that one of them focuses on Timmy, hmm. which is what the sequel movie does, but the sequel movie sucks, so we don't talk about it. Um, and I don't know, I think the other one also focuses on the other children. Like, mm. Mrs. Brisby takes, like, a back seat because she's much older now. And we start to focus on her children. Ah. But, uh, and, like, the other rats and whatnot. Yeah. But, but, um, yeah, in terms of, like, production stuff, there's, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, it, it, this I'll let you. This is your. No, no, it's fine. You, you, you go next. The 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 main thing is like um. Don Bluth, uh, John Palmore, Gary Goldman, all left Disney to pursue this project, which had originally been projected by Disney himself, as uh, too dark to be a commercial success. They were followed soon after by twenty other Disney animators. Uh, dubbed the Disney Defectors, who went on to form the uh, animation studio that Don Blue founded. Um, and 
the production was very troubled. Mainly, the uh, the movie was originally budgeted at six and a half million, but was reduced by the studio after production came underway. And the composer Gary Goldman and the producers actually resorted to mortgaging their own houses in order to raise an extra seven hundred thousand dollars to complete the movie. In spite of these difficulties, the movie still cost under under seven million dollars. Roughly half of what Disney had been spending at the time on each of their animated features, even with their cut-cutting methods. So this movie was a, a triumph for multiple reasons. Um, and a lot of the techniques in this movie, uh, animation-wise, uh, were rarely used or had not been used in a long time or were pioneered in this movie. Stuff like... Um, uh, split exposures to create shadows and translucency, diffusion and, and, and combining the split exposures to create reflections, um, colored xerography for the creation of cells and color orchestration. And the newer techniques were stuff like including the use of video animation for testing and the backlighting and the use of multiple exposure techniques. Uh, and also the... Um, the, the, the most prominent example people always point to is uh, the use of backlighting animation cells uh, to help create some of the magical effects, specifically um, Nicodemus's uh, uh, golden sparkling magic like when he was writhing or when he would make something move or float. Yeah. Also, his viewing the globe that he viewed things through was also uh, created using that, that same technique. Hmm. which very cool Cause, yeah because it's um what it is is um the that like to to i actually looked up the technical stuff for this because i i just kind of blathered on about it last time but i wanted to note the technical aspects yeah From what i understand uh let's, let's take the the globe the the viewing globe thing for example what's happening there is that the animation cell of like the the rings and like the circle are moving and that's the animation cell and the actual sphere itself is literally a light from a like a projector being flashed through the cell to create the effect of a magical flashing light hmm. at least as far as i understand it yeah which is which that's really fucking cool yeah for sure and I can't imagine how difficult that must have been to actually, like, do. To figure out in the first place. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, and, um, also, like, the, uh, the stuff about, um, uh, using multiplane cameras, uh, to create depth, uh, and combining that with the backlighting to create the magical hologram from the opening sequence. Yeah. The, the whole process of old school cell animation just boggles my mind like it, it's it's why stop stop motion is just animation <laughs> it, I, I, I feel like calling stop motion animation is almost like a redundant thing mm -hmm. because animation is already just a bunch of pictures sequenced yeah with minute changes and the um it's just doing it in a different way yeah, it's just doing it with 3D physical objects rather than cells with illustrations or 
uh, digital frames. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But the picturing... Izoken was what really helped me like get this in my head. And it still just boggles me. The whole thing of mounting the cells and then then remounting the new cells. And yeah, it's just, over and like, over and over again, and doing that yeah. in, in such a way, and sequencing it, and then also having to time that with music and sound. Yeah, it like just at first imagining all the work that goes into producing the cells, but then you have to shoot the cells, and that's the part I never thought about. Mm-hmm. I always knew animation was grueling, but I re- I always thought the grueling part ended once the cells were drawn. No, and then then you also uh, have to take into account yeah. coloring the cells. I consider that part of the drawing. Yeah, yeah, part. that's fair. Uh, the, 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 completing the cells. Yeah, completing the cells. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's crazy, man. Yeah, it it's absolutely insane. Because this was um, um, digital tools were being used at the time of this movie's production, but they weren't as prolific until a few years later. Yeah, I don't think we had tablet technology yet for sure no disney was uh, using uh digital tools for um certain things but the use of digital tools is like a super prolific part of the animation process wasn't really yeah. until stuff like um blue submarine number six uh rescue is yeah. down under uh grace mount great mouse detective etc yeah blue yeah. submarine number six is actually the first um anime animation thing to use all digital tools damn it's super important uh for yeah. that reason um i'm i'm looking forward to talking about it at some point i never saw it yeah, it came uh, on so to I... it came on tsunami back in the day it did and i thought it looked boring as hell <laughs> yeah i never really watched it i didn't get it when i was watching it as a kid yeah i just I, I I am the dumbass who's like, no, I just want more Dragon Ball or more Gundam, or mm-hmm. more, more you know, kind of just give me the fight shit. Mm-hmm. I I didn't like. Uh, oh, anime Bruce Wayne. Oh, Big O. Big O. I didn't like Big O for the same reason. Yeah. Um. We did. Oh yeah, we did talk about Big O. Yeah, we did. We did. We I mean, about... When I was a kid, I mean, I liked it as an adult. Yeah, but... yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I remember now that we talked about Big O. Yeah, we talked about it with uh, Cyber Six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that episode. Yeah. Um, the uh, on on the same path, uh, the same like note as um, animation and like the work that went into this movie is, uh, for example. There are more than 600 colors used in this movie. And one character, a Mr. Ages, has 26 colors in his character model. And the other one is that there are... This one is the one that still fucking makes makes me cry. There are 1,078 backgrounds in this movie. All of which were Damn. tested and then shot in continuity... To time so that the entire movie track would be viewed with just the color backgrounds. This enabled the overall impact of the color scheme to be evaluated, mm. and some backgrounds were repainted as a result. So they would draw the backgrounds and then 
tie it to the score and it's like ah no the mood the lighting of this scene needs to be different so we're going to recall the background to match the lighting and mood of the scene mm. which sidebar uh on the backgrounds there are some backgrounds in this movie um i've seen this movie a lot yeah every time i watch it i notice something new in the background every single time that that feels like just a running theme with uh don bluth yeah uh certain backgrounds especially like um the rats um the 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 their civilization on the rosebush and mr h's lab yeah you you look at that you can look at that for like hours and find all these yeah. little things in it for sure like um all the you can pick apart every single human thing or like big piece of our world that was used to make the thing in that specific room mm. like for example when uh mrs brisby uh, leaves Mr. Rages's um, lab, you can see that part of the wall is made from an old uh, lamp oil uh, uh, can. Stuff like that. Yeah. That's I fucking love that. Yeah. Um, and I think the only the only other thing that was super interesting I wanted to talk about in terms of the uh, production was um. In, 18, in 1982, when the movie released, Disney actually barred several theaters from booking the movie as a double feature yes. with, with Tron. Yes. Because Disney claimed that the studio wanted their movie to be paired with another Disney movie. But, uh... I... Mm. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think we this time we mentioned how this was uh, uh, Jerry Goldsmith's uh, favorite uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I actually uh, did a score that he did. Yeah, Jerry Goldsmith. This was his first music score from any movie, and he later said that it was among his personal favorites. He was yeah. instrumental in introducing the movie to Steven Spielberg, who went on to work with Don Bluth on American Tale in '86. Yeah. According to Bluth and Gary Goldman on the DVD commentary, Goldsmith loved the movie so much that he volunteered an extra three weeks to polish and refine the score, even though he was not actually obligated to do so yeah oh and then also do you want to mention the stuff about the uh editors having to change the thing about mrs brisby's name? oh yeah 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 yeah. so the lead character's name was changed from mrs frisbee in the novel to mrs frisbee to avoid legal entanglements with the whammo company makers of the frisbee this change came late in production uh a good time after the actors and actresses had recorded their dialogue. Uh, so it wasn't feasible to have them re-record at this point. So editors had to first find an instance where each actor who said Mrs. Frisbee's name, where they found an instance of those actors saying a word that started with a BR and then manually cut and pasted into the magnetic tape uh and replace the FR. Those editors are braver than any U.S. Marine. Yeah, uh, old school, uh, old school sound editing is fucking hard. Like having to cut and tape uh, uh, film or or magnetic strips is just oh. I can't even imagine. That must have been one of the most painstaking 
processes? I've used um, dual uh, uh, tape uh, VC, VHS editors. Yeah. Uh, where you have to like scrub through, uh, you know, audio and hit record on one and record on the other. And oh, I, I've done that, and that that's already enough of a pain in the ass. I can't imagine having to manually cut and paste things. Ugh. Uh, Ridiculous. Like God, if your hand is just a millimeter off. Mm-hmm. Oh. Fucking heroes, man. Yeah. Um, saints. Saints. The only other thing that I don't think I mentioned last time was... Gods um, among men. Gods, Sorry, gods, go on. Gods among men. The other thing I didn't mention last time, I think, I mean, other than the amulet stuff, was um, that uh, I've seen this movie a lot, and the, the scene that always forever sticks in my mind that is still one of my favorite pieces of animation is the entire scene with the great owl. Mm, yeah. I, I fucking love the great owl. He, I really like the way the, the, the cobwebs on him are animated. Oh, yeah, they look like a cape. Yeah. It's a very good design. And I also, I think they're supposed to be, like, uh, from a visual storytelling perspective, the fact that him and Nicodemus have very similar design cues. Yeah, they have both, like, warty appendages and they have the yeah. same mustache and the glowing eyes. Yeah. Which I think... I remember while I was watching, I realized, oh, Don Bluth just... The visual language of Don Bluth, uh, mustache means wise. <laughs> yeah. Also, the glowing eyes, I think, are supposed to represent, like, how both Pow-wah. of... Pow-wah. Both of them are supposed to be outside of the norm. They are magical somehow. Yeah. Which I think is very cool. Yeah. And also the the, the owl, the performance is fantastic. Yeah. It uh what's his name? Was it Freeze that did him? Uh John Carradine. John Carradine. John Carradine knocked it out of the park on that. Fucking such a good voice. Yeah. But um I think I think that covers all of our bases. All right, cool. We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to get into The Last Unicorn. We will see you then. And welcome back again to Acme Podcast Incorporated. Let's get into The Last Unicorn, also from 1982, directed by Jules Brass and Arthur... I'm sorry, Jules Bass and Arthur Rankin Jr., uh, with Ryan credits going to Peter S. Beagle for both the screenplay and the novel it's based on, uh, starring the role voices of Alan Arkin, Jeff Bridges, Mia Farrow, Tammy Grimes, Robert Klein, Angela Lansbury, Christopher Lee, Keenan Wynn, Paul Fries, Rene Abergenois, Theodore Gottlieb, uh, Don Messick, Jack Jester, or I'm sorry, Jack Lester, uh, Nellie Bellflower, Ed Peck, and Ken Jennings, with the musical stylings of America. America. God. You know, it's funny. Um, despite being obsessed with like this era of rock music for most of my adolescence, mm-hmm. I've listened to Europe. I've listened to Asia. I've listened to 
uh, Men at Works, I Come From a Land Down Under. I own the album Toto 4, which contains their hit song, Africa. I've listened to the soundtrack to Brazil, which is about as close as you're going to get to a song a song or band titled South America. South America. And Australia, th- th- there's nothing to do for um, Antarctica. Antarctica. But uh, uh, Arctic Monkeys is as close as you're going to get. <laughs> Arctic monkey. Uh, that's the wrong hemisphere. Uh, never listen to America. Yeah, this um, this soundtrack fucks. Yeah, it fucking rocks. I know them by reputation, but I don't think I could tell you a song they've done outside of this movie. Yeah, right. It's kind of sad, honestly. I mean, I know they were a hit. I just don't know them. Yeah, but um. I think one of the weird things about the the soundtrack is like most of the movie is that the music is um non-diegetic like it's not sung by a character and then you get the one song in the movie that is it's and it's really jarring you know what I mean yeah uh Actually, I do know one of their songs. It's uh, A Horse With No Name. That's appropriate. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I've been through the desert on a horse with no name. Felt good to get out of the rain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. For sure. Uh, Muskrat Love. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ventura Highway, I Need You, uh, Tin Man, Lonely People. Sister Golden Hair, Daisy Jane. Yeah. Yeah, they've done a lot of good good stuff. Yeah, yeah. But sorry. Back th- to this. Th- uh, yeah. No, no, this is it's related. It's just like th- I think yeah. this is easily their most iconic oh, thing that uh, they've ever done. No, horse with no name. Horse for with sure. No name? Horse with no name. Mm. Alright, I'll give you that. That got mean. Yeah, you know what? You're right. You're right. But, um... Freaking Man's Road gave me big spirit stallion of the Cimarron fucking vibes. Yeah. Horse wandering around with, a, with some fucking rock ballads in the background. Yeah. But, um... Uh, as I said earlier, the, um... I have more to say about the actual film itself than I do about the uh, production and stuff. But um, I, I since we started with your onion at the start, right? Um, this one is really one where all the characters need a little expansion, and I'm sure the novel does this better. Yeah. Um. Uh, but I don't really have much to say aside from uh, Schmendrick, um, who is. Not the most interesting character in this movie, but uh, Schmendrick is the Yiddish word that it, it's basically interchangeable with schmuck. If you're calling someone a schmuck, you can also call them a Schmendrick. Um, mm. Like, man, I remember, like, uh, my dad used Schmendrick a lot. Uh, but in my dad would call me a schmuck if I was being obstinate. Mm-hmm. But if there was a jackass driver on the road, he called it these fucking schmendricks can't fucking drive. Uh, 
that 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 sort of it, it's like a, a no good scoundrel piece of shit. Yeah, it, it can't it can't you use like Schlemiel as well, or is that a Schlemiel is just that's more just a Holly like a Hollywood like, thing. Yeah. Okay. Like it, it is from Yiddish, but it's uh it's just not a it, it's not the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just sounded similar, so I... Yeah, yeah. No, um... Schlemiel. My dad never used Schlemiel. Mm-hmm. Um, Schlemiel has more of, like, a slimy connotation, almost. Mm. Uh, whereas Schmendrick is just, like, an idiot or yeah, a jackass. Yeah, he's a jackass. He's a... I think the literal translation is bungler. Uh, yeah, something like that, yeah. Something. And then schmuck is, it literally, you're literally calling someone a dick. With schmuck. Uh, uh, schmuck is a word for penis. Yeah, it's, um, unlucky bungler is, yeah. I think, the literal translation. Yeah. Which I think uh, apparently can be used interchangeably with the word schlemiel. But, you know, different languages evolve. And yeah. The... the meaning of the word slightly also changes. just different families have different tendencies to use exactly. different words different uh, type also different types of them jews yeah uh well no not mm-hmm. yiddish is yiddish is uh pretty intrinsic to uh, ashkenazi because you have Sephardim and then you have uh middle eastern jews who have their own oh, stuff okay. going on uh yiddish is unique to Oh. Jews of uh, Eastern European descent. Okay. I learned something today. Yeah. Uh, the Sephardic, which is basically like Mediterranean and Southern European, uh, have something called uh, Ladino, oh. uh, which Yiddish is a mix of Hebrew, Germanic, and Slavic languages. Ladino is a mix of uh, like romance languages, Hebrew and like North African. Cool. Uh, because those are Sephardic Jews were mainly for a long time in Spain hmm. and North Africa. Uh, so Ladino has a bit of a Spanish sound to it, the same way uh, Yiddish has a bit of a German sound. That's fucking cool. I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, I know nothing about Ladino besides the name uh, and basic premise. But no, but like I love, I'm... I love learning. I love learning things. Yeah, I've actually never met a Sephardic Jew in my life. Uh, Have you ever met a Middle Eastern Jew? I mean, yeah, I've met tons of Israeli people. Mm-hmm. Um, like, <laughs> there was, um, uh-huh. uh. uh you ever seen uh, the horrible film Don't Mess with the Zohan? Yeah, I have. You know the 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 Israeli electronic store guy? Yeah. I've been in those stores so many times <laughs> in my life. Um, I knew that guy. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't know him personally, but I've been in enough of those uh, yeah, yeah, stores yeah. and dealt with enough of those guys, or my dad did while I was there. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, you know, do you, do you have a Panasonic? No, but I've got a Sloney. <laughs> I, I don't want to. I don't want a Sloney. Sloney, just as good as Sony. <laughs> I don't want 
for Sony. I want a Panasonic. Don't have pa- don't have Panasonic. We got Sloney. It's good. That's, that's really fucking good. Yeah. That, that's not really the accent, but uh, I, I can't do a good Israeli accent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Uh, oh, man. Uh, but um, anyway. Um, the uh, I'll get my trivia and production stuff out of the way first, because as I said, I have way more to say about the, the other. Um, yeah. The most interesting thing about this movie is the... Uh, animation uh, done on it was done by Topcraft Tokyo in Japan, which is headed by former Toei animation employee Toru Hara, with Masaki Izuka being in charge of the production. The studio um, worked on, previously they worked on uh, Rankin Bass's The Hobbit and Return of the King, and Stingiest Man in Town, Frosty's Went to Wonderland, basically anything that Rankin Bass did that was 2D animated. They probably also yeah. did some stuff for Thundercats as well. Mm. Um, they would also they would later be hired by Miyazaki to work on Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, mm. and uh, their core members would eventually go on and split off from Topcraft to form Studio Ghibli. Yeah. Because technically, Gib- uh, Nausicaa isn't it. While it is a Miyazaki film, it is not a Ghibli film because Ghibli had not been formed when Nausicaa came out. Yeah. Which is a fun fact for all of you out there. Um, Christopher Lee uh, showed up for the recording sessions armed with his own copy of the book uh, with several places marked to indicate things that, quote, must not, in his opinion, be omitted. Yeah. This is similar to his, uh, I, I think it's in the extended cut where he talks about this where he would bring multiple copies of the Lord of the Rings books yeah. onto the, the set of Lord of the Rings to make sure that he was getting lines right and that, like, he would... I remember, I think he told a story about when he walked up to um, uh, several actors. Uh, I think Sam's actor mentions one... Uh, Sean Aspen mentions specifically this one bit where Christopher was like, now remember... Uh, Remember, Sam holds Frodo's hand in this in this scene. The fans are going to be watching for that. <laughs> oh, if it was anyone other than him, we'd be calling him a pretentious fuck. But it's fucking, you know what? No, I mean it's it's still pretentious as fuck. But it he is gets Christopher a, Lee. He gets a pass because he's Christopher fucking Lee. He gets a pass on this and on Last Unicorn, but I'm not willing to give him more than that. Mm-hmm. He's still British aristocracy and fuck British aristocracy. Oh yeah, I know. Fair. I still love Chris. I loved Christopher. Yeah, I, I do too. He, he's he's a great fucking actor. He's also, uh, I mean, his kids are. If he ever had children now, but he in his life he was the last living heir to Charlemagne. What? Yeah. Um, I think it's through his mother's family. Uh, you can trace his because the aristocracy loves their genealogies. They could trace his bloodline all the way back to Charlemagne. That's so fucking cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I did not know that. Yeah, I'm learning uh, things every day. Yeah, uh, uh, through the Norman line and all that jazz. But neat. So, 
related... <clears throat> fuck nobility. Yeah, fuck nobility. Fuck the fuck the monarchy. Um, related yeah. to that is that when Peter Beagle showed up at a recording session during the making of the movie, while Christopher Lee was recording uh, King Haggard's monologue about how only unicorns brought him happiness, uh, Lee begged Beagle for his approval of his vocal performance, offering to record it again <laughs> if the actor, if the author found it unsatisfactory. Mm. Um, and also, uh, related to that as well as that in the German version of the film, Christopher Lee also uh, played Haggard. Yeah, because uh, he's uh, apparently he's fluent in, uh, in German. I believe he's also fluent in French. Or he was fluent in French. He he he's got to be like an omni not an omniglot, but it's definitely a polyglot. He he was British intelligence for fuck's sake. They have to be multilingual. You know that, yeah. You know that shit about um, he that store that that thing that he did on the set of Lord of the Rings when. Uh, of course, the this is how a man sounds when he's stabbed in the back. <laughs> I fucking love so much. Yeah. Oh, God, I I love that story. Yeah, but, it's a um, good one. It's a very good one. It's up there with that story that Vigo uh, told about when he kicked the helmet in two towers and broke his toe. But instead of, like, saying that he broke his toe, he just, like, screamed and turned it into part of the performance. Nice. Uh, I think my favorite story is probably... Uh... The guy who played Gimli. Oh, uh, John Rhys-Davies. John Rhys-Davies. Instead of actually practicing the fight choreography, he would just ask, okay, so who do I hit first? You you come at me. And the the stunt guys would say, me, then Jim, then Bob, then Dale. And he'd be like, okay. And they'd also be like, please don't hit us. Please don't really hit us. Uh... It's not necessary for the scene. And he'd be like, I'm going to hit you. <laughs> and then he proceeded to hit all of them. <laughs> like, I, I'll with his axe. I'll hit you and then I'll dodge this way and then I'll hit him and then that guy. Oh, not even that much. It's just I'll hit this one and then that one and then this one. No, uh, on a similar note, and when they took, when John Rhys Davies took them out to dinner, the cast. Yeah. And he was like, oh, we'll have a we'll have a bull and grouse and we'll have uh, several baked potatoes. Do you have any quail? Bring the quail. This is an entire king's feast for the fucking cast. Yeah. Ridiculous. Fucking love John Rhys-Davies. He is the perfect person to play a dwarf. He is the perfect person to play a dwarf. Or a, a Tolkienian dwarf. A, a fantasy yeah. Tolkienian dwarf. Yeah. But, um... The only other notes I have for trivia and stuff are, uh, in terms of casting, uh, Dustin Hoffman, Harrison Ford, and Mark Hamill were considered to voice Schmendrick. It would have brought a very different energy. Um, yeah, especially Harrison, uh, Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill would have brought a very young energy, considering the time. Yeah. This is... Empire time. Yeah. It's em- like, yeah. The height of Mark Hamill's, like, Star yeah. Wars, you yeah. know, fame. Um, Harrison Ford would have brought a very, like, I can't picture, like, okay, Indiana Jones and uh, 
and Han Solo, they could be awkward in a way, but it was still with like this cowboy confidence still. Yeah. It was mostly just like when no one reacted to his cowboy confidence the way he wanted that it came off awkward. Um, yeah. I which think... I think is a, a wonderful character quirk. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Dustin Hoffman could have worked, but it... I, I was working towards that, but yeah, Dustin Hoffman would have been a very interesting uh, performance, but I I really liked Alan Arkin's job. I, I like... Alan Arkin fucking knocked... I think everybody in this kind of knocks it out of the park, which is saying a lot, considering that you have to play opposite Christopher Lee. <laughs> well, a, a good performer can bring out the best in the, their fellows. It's true. And I think Christopher Lee and Alan... I think they all kind of brought out the best in each other. Yeah. Truly. Um, the other people considered for Haggard were John Vernon, James Earl Jones, and John Carradine. Who we we just mentioned in Nim. Okay, yeah. John Carradine. Yeah. Uh, James Earl Jones, can, I can picture in any sort of regal role, whether it's uh, this or... Darth Vader or the king from coming to America. Um King Andreas. King Andreas also it, no, if, no, king no Andreas. If, if, I could see him or him or Keith David doing King Andreas is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh he also Mustafa from Lion King. I think Mufasa. Mustafa Mufasa. It's been so fucking long, man. Uh, I don't think I've seen it since the movie theater, honestly. I went and saw Lion King when they re-released the animated version in theaters yeah. in like 2013. Yeah. I, I didn't quite latch on to Lion King the way a lot of other people in our generation did. I used uh, to really love it, but I've grown to like realize how flawed it is, but I still like it. it it's no fault of its own that it's I didn't not... latch on to it. It's just Uh, the the thing I did latch on to is the Timon and Pumbaa show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, ba- basically what I'm going to latch on to is the dumb buddy comedy that's based on the movie more than the movie. Yeah, that, that's, that, the, that's the most in-character laser thing ever. Yeah. Very on brand. Yeah, I just like dumb buddy comedies, man. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But it is very oh. in character. Yeah. Uh, the, the last... Uh, I've still never seen Lion King 2. It's one of the better Disney sequels. I, I don't doubt it. I have seen one and a half, though. Of course you have. <laughs> I, I did seek it out. I saw it in fucking uh, biology class in the ninth grade. Jesus. Um, <laughs> and that's the same teacher that showed us um, little, uh, Finding Nemo and... Uh, uh, Shark Tale. Yeah. Um, <laughs> last little uh, voice acting thing. Uh, Prince Lear. The voices that... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The other actors that were considered to play Prince Lear were Michael Crawford, Richard Harris, and Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell, I would have really liked to see that performance. Yeah. Um, I think Kurt... that's just because I, I love Kurt Russell. Um, yeah. But... But Jeff Bridges knocks it out of the park. Yeah, he's the most subdued 
um, person in this movie. It's the least Jeff Bridges I've ever heard Jeff Bridges play. Yeah. I've heard similar thing. I haven't seen um, what is it? is it? True Grit that he's in. Yeah, that's True Grit. Yeah, yeah. True Grit's another one I've heard that he just completely transforms himself into another person. Because mm-hmm. like when you think of you know uh, him in Tron or him in uh, the Big Lebowski, the Big Lebowski, you know, and you just like kind of hear him talk in like an interview. He has kind of you know that surfer guy California talk, you know. mm Hmm. Uh, that's just like your opinion, man. Uh, Fucking love. Uh, I love the Big Lebowski. Big Lebowski's real good. The dude abides, man. The dude abides. Um, it just really pulls. I I don't do every time I try to do a Jeff Bridges, I end up doing like a Seth Rogen. No, you're doing Dermot. Is what you're doing. Oh, you end up doing the Dermot voice. God. Yeah. Yeah. I Anyway, uh, but yeah, uh, I love Jeff Bridges, man. I love Jeff Bridges. But yeah, he just, it's the least Jeff Bridges you, other than like True Grit, this is like the least Jeff Bridges you've ever seen. Even though I love Lee in this movie, I think that Alan Arkin as Schmendrick is probably my favorite performance in this movie. Just personally. Yeah, for sure. Like, Schmendrick isn't my favorite character in this movie, but he gives my favorite performance. Definitely. Alan Arkin is phenomenal. Because he, he really balances Mendrick's character of being goofy, but also, like, um, charming. Yeah. Um, that, that that brings me to a point I made last time that I wanted to bring up again, and how Schmendrick, uh you mentioned last time, but I'm bringing it up now, Uh Peter S. Beagle's Jewish. He, he was born. I've seen he, that he was both born in the Bronx, and I've seen that he was born in Manhattan, mm-hmm. one or the other, but quintessential New York Jew, born in the 30s, well, 39, so that was more of a 40s kid, whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, Schmendrick really personifies this one I've always considered it the ideal Jewish folk hero. Uh, and I just assumed that it was because it feels like every folk hero I've ever been introduced to that isn't like someone from the Bible is like this. But it could just be the type of stories my parents liked that I got introduced to. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, you know, he he's um, he's a trickster. You know, he, he's, he's got that... Uh, Sorry, I couldn't give you a top class magician. You'll have to settle for a second rate pickpocket. Love that line. Uh, yeah, um, it it's just I feel in the the world of Judaism I was brought up in um, culturally, we do not care for the big, muscly heroics. We as a culture prefer a heroic Loki to a heroic Thor. Mm. Um, we we prefer our heroes to be clever, to be tricky, to be uh, just honorable yet duplicitous. Mm-hmm. Uh, like 
you, you because a lot of because for the most part in in Middle East and not Middle East in Eastern Europe we were underdogs and we were scrappy. Uh, we had to you know do what we had to do to survive. Uh, th th that's what a large part of uh, the Fiddler on the Roof is kind of about. You know that that's where the line in Fiddler on the Roof comes from. A, a Jew's place in uh, what what's the town? Oh, yeah. I... That's gonna bug the uh, cinema because I love. I'll the... just say Russia. I'll just say Russia. I love Fiddler. a Jew's place in Russia is tenuous, like a like a like a Fiddler on the Roof. Uh. Yeah, it's uncertain and it, it's tenuous and it's tricky, and you have to be able to dance. Which Kendrick uh, really personifies, truly. Yeah, he really does. Uh, a good example of that, is, which is sort of my favorite thing, is there's a, a children's storybook from when I was a kid, uh, probably older than that, but I, it was my favorite storybook when I was a kid called Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblins by Eric Kimmel, uh, illustrated by Trina Shark Hyman. Uh, that oh, illustrations are beautiful. Um, yeah, I when you mentioned this the last time, I I I and I looked it up. I I had also read this book as a kid. It's, yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, uh, but the whole concept of the story though is Herschel's a wandering vagrant, which is a pretty common uh, trope in Ashkenazi stories. Um, he, he's. A wanderer. Uh, another good example is uh, Shalom Aleichem, who is uh, a character created by the same person who created the story that Fiddler on the Roof is based on. Um, mm -hmm. uh, he's going from... He, he's a, a vagrant, and he comes to a town, and it, it's Hanukkah, so it's the dead of winter in Eastern Europe, and he needs a place to sleep, and everyone in the village is like, we don't have any extra beds. And he says, alright, I'll stay in the an abandoned synagogue on the top of the hill. And they all tell him, Oh, Herschel, you don't want to do that. It's haunted by the 13 goblins. No, the eight goblins of Hanukkah. You don't want to go up there. And he's like, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And then he, they come to him every night, the goblin of that night, and he tricks them into leaving. And that's how he has a place to sleep for eight nights. <laughs> Very good. Uh, yeah. Uh, I love, I love that story. Yeah. Uh, and I mentioned that apparently there's a stage play version of it. Yeah, and it it it's basically a bottle episode. Yeah. Well, no, no, that that that's not fair. It's not a bottle episode. It just has maybe two scenes or two settings. So perfect. There's the village at the start, and then the synagogue. So perfect for a stage play. Perfect for a stage play because they've only got to make two sets. Yeah, the um, uh, going off of that and Smendrick, and this is sort of getting into um, smug English lit analyzation of the theming of this film yes. and the and the book. Um, is uh, at the time that this book was written, which was nineteen sixty eight ish, I want to say. Um, the, like that, yeah. the the popular um, image of the wizard was you had Merlin and Gandalf, and if you read the Dungeons and Dragons books, you had uh, Elminster. Uh, th this this was this predates Dungeons and Dragons. 
Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. You're right. Dungeons and Dragons was the seventies. Yeah, but the at but Merlin and Gandalf are the and or the wizard contempt or the wizard insert like Aslan from uh, Narnia. Uh, C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. Narnia. They they're the mentor figure. They're wise. They're old. They know all things. And then, then you have Schmendrick, who's a <laughs> who's a fuck up. Yeah. Like he does, he can't even control the magic, and the only time he ever gets it to actually work is when he just says, "Do as you will, magic." Yeah. And he just tries to make magic work, and when he does, it's either he does it the wrong way, or causes something bad to happen, like making a tree fall in love with him. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or making the cage that the unicorn is inside of shrink. Yeah. Or, et cetera, et cetera. All he, all he can really do are cheap parlor tricks. Yeah. Which, I think he'll get further with cheap parlor tricks, personally. Yeah, no. As long I... as you don't tell anyone they're actually magic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, honestly, yeah. some of the shit he did for Haggard was... Kind of impressive when he danced with his own coat. Yeah. Um, but it, and that's like I said, getting into like this movie and the book are full of um. It's an examination, deconstruction, and celebration of a lot of the themes of fantasy, fairy tales, and mythology that were sort of prevalent at the time. Your King Arthur stories, Robin Hood. Uh, Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, yeah, yeah, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and the the major themes of this are stuff like loss of innocence, whimsy, unchilded. And yeah. the best example of that is that most people can't see the unicorn for what she really is. They have consigned themselves to believing that such things do not exist, and thus their mind rationalizes away the fantasy to see something that it can see. Now that that's interesting because I always thought there there was an old I always thought there was an old myth that only a maiden could see a unicorn for what it truly was. No, only a maiden can ride a unicorn. Oh, okay. Only a maid only a fair maiden. Uh, and an innocent maiden. Sometimes it's a virgin maiden, depending mm. on the the translation. Virgin maiden, innocent yeah. maiden, sincere maiden, pure maiden. However you want. I mean that that usually translate those those words are all basically old synonyms for virgin. Exactly, and it all depends on the literary and is it literary interpretation is like does it yeah. literally mean virgin or does it just mean pure of heart or whatever mm-hmm. and okay it it just depends on which you know how you translate yeah. it and how you interpret it yeah um and the only ones who can see her for what she is are schmendrick and fortuna and molly schmendrick and fortuna are sorcerers slash sorceresses and they know how to do magic so of course they can see her for what she is yeah but Molly, Molly is the most interesting one because her, I, I mentioned this, but Molly's scene where she meets the unicorn 
makes me fucking cry every time. It, I didn't get it when I first saw it as a kid, but when you revisit this movie, when you're older and you see that scene, it hits way harder. Because yeah, Molly is angry. She says, how dare you come to me now when I'm like this? Where were you? Ten years ago, twenty years ago, where were you when I was new? And it's just so, like, despite everything that Molly has been through and how weary she is in, in, her, in, in her introduction, she gives off this vibe of a woman who is just, the world sucks and everybody is out to get you. Don't trust anybody, right? She, like, when she sees Smendrick, she's like, got him. Got him. He's trying to trick you. Yeah. And that's immediately her vibe is like, oh, this is a lady who can't doesn't trust anybody and who knows what the word for it is. And yet, despite that, part of her still believed that someday she'd meet a unicorn and that she would be that fair maiden that you talked about in the story. Yeah. She hasn't consigned herself to such things. And that's why she's so angry. Because that's not how the story goes. I'm supposed to be a beautiful maiden. I'm supposed to be fair and young. And it, this, is, this line isn't in the movie, but in the book, she says something akin to unicorns are for beginnings, new things, and purity. Not for old women like me. And um, the other line that really gets me that she says is when Smendrick asks, do you consider what for she is? You know what you see? And she says, when you've been waiting your entire life to see a unicorn, you know it for what it is. And the line when Smendrick tells her that she's the last and she says, it would be the last unicorn on, on Earth that would come to Molly Grew. Yeah. Like, ah, Fucking hurts. Yeah. Fucking hurts, man. Ah, It's harsh. Harsh. Um, the, um, the other related to, like, the mythology stuff and how it's wrapped up in a lot of this is uh, the harpy. The harpy in myth mm. is often a messenger of the underworld. Yeah. They said to come down and carry sinful souls to the darkest pits of the underworld, or Tartarus, depending on the, the reading. Yeah. Which is why the harpy attacks Lady Fortuna, not just out of revenge, but like it's like a literary thing. Punish the wicked. Yeah, punish the wicked. And the harpy's name is Seleno, which is a, a real harpy from Greek and Roman myth and apparently encountered by Odysseus in uh, yeah. the Odyssey. Um, but and then there's the unicorn herself and the how it ties into the, the one of the other themes of the, the book and the movie and that's the unicorn is actually a very selfish character. Yeah. Which I like a lot, like especially early on. Like she kinda just begrudgingly lets Mendrick come along yeah. when when he says like oh, don't worry about me lady and then she says oh I won't with not mm. a hint <laughs> of remorse 
at yeah. all. Like, he doesn't care. It, and then at the end, you talk, talk about the change. Yeah. But, yeah, and then it's... But all, but now, but when in her time in being human, she learns to love and feel lost. And she will forever be different for all the uniforms because of it. Because she was allowed to feel sadness. And the other line that always fucking makes me cry is at the end. When she says, there will never be another unicorn that would learn to know loss. And I thank you for that, too. Just... Uh, uh, it is... There's a reason uh, Beagle is considered one of America's foremost fantasists. Yes. He's damn good at what he do. Yeah. I, I'm of the strong opinion that if you have any love of fantasy, I think The Last Unicorn is required reading. Yeah. For sure. Um, and that's related to, like... A lot of the lines in this movie and in this book are some of those lines that I'm like, I wish I was that good at writing. Yeah. The, um... Your the thing the butterfly says your name is a golden bell hung in my heart I would make break my body to pieces to call you once by your name yeah Just, but that I, don't, I think you mentioned you don't know if that because of the nature of the butterfly that may not even be something Beagle himself wrote yeah because uh, everything that butterfly almost everything else that butterfly said was a reference to like a song or a poem or something Something that had already existed in the world of man. Not at the time that this is set, but... Yeah. Because the unicorn mentions that that's just what butterflies are. They just repeat every little thing they've ever heard. Yeah. And the butterfly could represent a lot of things. It could represent the the author, the the, 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 the concept of the narrator and the storyteller. But also like uh, the idea of the bard and the traveling, the traveling storyteller and oral uh, tradition in general. Or I could just be up my own ass, and he uh, he's just a, he's just a weird butterfly, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It it it's uh it's a nice little uh the word. Vagrity. Vagrity, yes. It is open to interpretation. Yeah. I just want to make sure that's an actual word. I think vagrity is a... Vagueness? Vagary. Vagary. Vagary, yes. That that is also um, a thing that I want to point out. I'm going to say a little bit more in regards to this, but don't take my words as gospel. These are just interpretations of the the work. You could easily get... This, this is your take on yeah, it. Yeah, this is my take. You could easily get other meanings out of some of this stuff, for sure. Yeah. I, I definitely saw more of a... Um, like... Not letting people try to make you something you're not, 
and then the danger of letting those people's opinions about you shape how you see yourself. Oh, that is an interesting interpretation. Uh, because like Schmendrick literally transforms the unicorn, and then she starts, you know, becoming more and more human, and doesn't want to become a unicorn again. And then when she becomes a unicorn again, she she's herself again, and and she is changed for it, but she is still true to herself at that point. That's an yeah, that that's definitely an easy read on that. I I didn't consider that interpretation of it. Yeah. Uh, very, very cool. Um, I, I think, at least what I got out of it was the idea that it's like water being poured into a, a cup, and like the the water remembers the shape of its vessel. Mm. You know, like being a human and that this is affecting her, but yeah. at the same time, it could be it could also be both. Yeah. It's... Well, I I don't mean like Mhm. No, no, go on. It's a little bit of what you're saying, but it's more like even bad experiences can affect you in good ways in the end. Oh yeah, yeah. I I I totally agree with that. That that's what it try- yeah. that that's what it's trying to say. Yeah. It's trying to say that like um it it's trying to say that not just because there's no happy ending here doesn't mean that it's it's all bad and it starts to get very literal about like nothing really ends it just keeps going and happy endings can't come in the middle of the story yeah and what it means to be a hero in a story and all this very uh literal examination of the tropes that it's trying to deconstruct um like Lear is just he's the the he's the prince he's the prince charming he's the hero of the story in another book yeah and normally i would really hate the cliched romance between him and amalthea but i like the point that it's trying to make yeah it's not even really a true romance yeah, it, um, it's passing fancy because Amalthea is a doesn't even has never experienced love in her life because she's a unicorn. Yeah, so it's like it's like having your first crush. I don't even see it as that. I I see her turning to Lear out of fear of returning to another state, out of a fear of change. As a mm. she does she she has grown used to this box that she has been put into. She doesn't want to leave the box, and Lear is a potential way to stay in the box. It's a self-imposed prison, but the prison is safe, and I don't have to face the realities of the world. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's totally true. And you you could argue that on Lear's side, the love is true. But even then, it still has a, a, a slight, um, that sort of skin-deep, love that you see in a lot of chivalry chivalric tales yes uh where he only loves her because she's a fair maiden and he is a prince and that is what is right yeah according to how he was raised but that dude was ready to be married to a horse yeah 
I love. So he, I I want to give him a little credit. Yeah, he he did say uh, I love who I love whom I love. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. Credit to him. He was totally willing to be even knowing who she was. Still loved her and wanted to marry her. Yeah, like uh, I don't care if you got hooves or fingertips. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be together. <laughs> um, but you know that that don't work. Uh, it don't. It don't work. Because uh, now she's immortal again, and that's the whole. Other it, it's thing. a whole uh, like the whole thing is about not all not all things have happy endings, but that doesn't mean that something good can't come out of a quote unquote tragic ending. I also, it, I think it also kind of feels like the way it sets up is this isn't the end for any of them. No, it's not. It's just. Spendrick said it. Nothing really ever ends. It's just yeah. Stories don't really end. They just just keep going. Yeah. And that's very poignant, I think. Yeah. And I, it's one of the things I like so much about this movie and the book. And honestly, like, the more you really try and read into the subtext, the like, um, I got some of this subtext my on my second viewing. And then more on my third viewing, and uh, upon my reading of the book as well, th- there's a lot to unpack in terms of what it's trying to say or how what you could interpret from the the text. Yeah. Um. Which I, I like a lot. Um. Then that's pretty much as far as a up my own ass literary. <laughs> Uh, English lit stuff, but the the only other the, s- s- a sidebar to the um the thing about this movie being poetic and in, in mm. its dialogue is the two other lines that really stick out to me are um, two things Schmendrick says. He says, um, "Don't cry." If you have become human enough to cry, then not none of the magic in the world can ever change you back. Yeah. And then the thing he says to Lear uh, about um, when he leaves, and he says, "She will re- she will remember your heart when men are fairy tales and books are written by rabbits." Ah. Uh, Damn. Fucking real good man yeah uh, um the only other thing that I think is worth mentioning and, and that's more on the um, it's kind of related to music and similar stuff is god this movie's fucking pretty <laughs> yeah I, I I do have one other thing I'd like to add after that but yeah th- this is a visual there's nothing particularly mind blowing about technique or even necessarily like a complexity of the characters animation yeah but it is beautiful to look at and it is i mean it's professionally animated it, it it's a feature film budget and feature film animation don't get me wrong i i do not want to short sell this movie in any way shape or form um mm-hmm. but it is beautiful to look at it's a movie that in motion is 
like fine, but in stillness is yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. Like, you can take any screenshot from most of this movie and like just stare at it. The background especially. We talk a lot about really pretty backgrounds on this show, but I think that this film has some of the most beautiful backgrounds of any piece of animation I've ever seen. They have some really nice sort of oil painting, painterly looks. Yeah, lots of use of them. Uh, Pastels and soft colors. Yes, yes. It, it's really it's really nice to look at. Uh there is one correction I wanted to make. Yes. Um, the music is performed by America, but the music is actually by Jimmy Webb. Oh. Uh, and this ties into a fun piece of trivia I just found. Um, mm-hmm. Jules Bass, the co-director, revealed that Jeff Bridges called him out of blue, volunteered to do the movie for free, and recommended Jimmy Webb for the soundtrack. That's amazing. I love Jeff Bridges too. <laughs> I, I really do. Like, I'm always down to see something with him in it. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think the movie's style, and this is sort of related to like um, some of the art from the opening. It's really mm-hmm. trying to emulate, uh, as you said, oil paintings. Like, I think the best example is um, stuff like the Garden of Earthly Delights. Yeah. Just like biblical um, oil paintings. And fantasy oil yeah. and oil paintings from like um uh what's the word like old uh books about mythological creatures and stuff like that. Oh yeah. Uh it, it also really pulls from, you know, like illuminated manuscripts on a lot of it, particularly in like credit sequences and such. Yes. And um then it's trying to like combine all of these things into like a cohesive style and also like a storybook kind of quality yeah and then it it also has a little like especially in the unicorn and later when she's transformed into amalthea it has a lot of precursors to what we would consider like shoujo manga art oh yeah the uh the the sailor moon and uh, revolutionary girl utena and stuff like that yeah i definitely think Uh, both sailor moon and utena borrowed a lot of um, visual language from this movie for sure yeah I, I think it's a very even if not directly the this movie is um, it, it, it's art style can definitely be felt I, I think a lot of it can also uh, because Amalfia also really reminds me of um, I can never remember her name because I haven't actually seen it I just I'm aware of it through pop culture osmosis but um mm-hmm. the lady in the yellow jumpsuit from battleship yamato oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and also uh from the same creator um the the galaxy express the lady that's in the the, the fur coat and the black hat yeah the 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 tall um pale woman with like the live frame that and that has like that yeah, they all they have a very similar quality about them. I totally agree. Yeah, and I I really think those probably those probably contributed to the design for Amalfia, and also and then both of them contributed to later on shoujo manga series. Yeah, it's like an evolution and, and the whatnot, and then that's sort of also yeah. an evolution of like um, uh, 
combining traditional Western fantasy stuff with like stuff of the time, like uh, Mobile Suit Gundam and whatnot. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 a lot of like layers of art inspiration and um what's the word uh reference and whether directly or indirectly evolution yeah. of art style in general yeah so very cool yeah you got anything else to say no i think i'm good we're we've all right cool you know, we, uh, we went over everything we did last time and more yeah all right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we'll close this bitch out. We'll see you then. And welcome back for the last time this episode to Acme Podcast Incorporated. Uh, so, yeah, uh, despite me fucking up and my audio not recording, we still got a pretty good episode this week, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we brought some new information to the table that we did in our first take anyway. Uh, I honestly think we could benefit from doing a second take most cases. It might end up with a more concise, uh, tight show and mm-hmm. gives us time to think up new shit. That is uh, that is true. It 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 may depend. There might we might try it for certain episodes that we think require it. Yeah, uh, it it does feel like a, a hassle that's not quite worth it. But uh, I think it, I, it, I think some it might things, result in a slightly better show. Some things it might be worth it for. Yeah. Like um, uh, Roger Rabbit, yeah. for example. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to doing that, doing this again so soon. But uh, yeah, I mean that's this is what 43, and that's going to be 50. That's going that's a while away. Oh, that's end of November, my dude. That'll be here before you know it. Yeah. Yeah. Well. I, I still most of the time I'm thinking, oh no, it, it it's only June. Oh God, no, it's September. It's September. Oh God! Do you remember the twenty? Yeah. September. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. Well, yeah. That's the show. Uh, yeah, that's the show. Uh, if you would care, we would greatly appreciate it if you would uh, give it, give us uh, five stars on iTunes or rate give us high ratings on whatever source you watch this on. Spotify. Th- watch, listen, Spotify. Yeah iPod, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, yeah. uh, whatever your podcast listening. Yeah, whatever your preference. Yeah. Podcast uh, listening platform of choice. Yeah. Uh, th- th- there's some aggregators that just automatically add things as they come across them. Yeah. Uh, that you could be listening to us on that I don't know about. Podbay, I think. Uh, Podbay, probably. Uh, I know that's how Google works. I don't know if we've got made it to Google yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, please leave those. And uh, if you want to give direct feedback, you can do that by finding us on Twitter. Or nope, sorry, before that, you can email us at acmepodcastinc at gmail.com. Hey, Kai, can I get that back one more time? That's acmepodcastinc at gmail.com. Yep, and I'm just going to take a quick gander at the email. And... Uh, Nope. So uh, you can also find us on Twitter by going to at Inc. Podcasts. That's at I-N-C-P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at Inc. Podcasts. Uh, you can also find us on Tumblr. Hey, Kai, 
can tell us more about that. You can find us on Tumblr at acmepodcasts.tumblr.com. That's acmepodcasts.tumblr.com. If you don't want to send an email, you can send in an ask, like uh, this one. We have an ask. Oh, great. Uh, if either of you could be a fantasy race in D&D, which would it be? Orc. I'm torn between Warforged, uh, Cobalt, Goblin, and Dragonborn. Hmm. Uh, I think I'd probably be a Dragonborn, though. Alright. Alright, kid. What? I, I I don't know. I I I don't know, man. I don't know. Uh. I I would yeah. I would be a dragonborn. I'd probably be a fucking dragonborn, like blacksmith or farmer. Okay. Some if I'm going. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go on. If, go if on. I was actually in a fantasy D and D world, that's probably what I would I would end up being. I'd be a fucking dragonborn blacksmith or farmer. If I was a dragonborn blacksmith, I'd make like magic weapons and shit. Mm. Is that what you think you'd be, or is that what you'd want to be? That's what I'd want to be. What I think I would be is a fucking dragonborn scholar that worked at, like, a wizard tower in a small city or town, and I just, like, wrote shit down, or I fucking was a minorly important writer. Mm. That's what I think I would be. In D&D. What I would want to be is an orc. Yeah. What I think I'd actually be is probably like a, a halfling vagrant. Mm. Like, just, just a hobo. Halfling. Not a murder hobo. Halfling. Just a hobo. Halfling barbarian. Uh. No, not a barbarian. I, I don't think... I. I am, despite having a background in both boxing and karate and taekwondo, I, I am not really a, uh, and, and my willingness to argue, I'm not really much of a confrontational person. Yeah. Only if I know the person am I willing to start a confrontation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as a vagrant, I doubt I know many people well enough to get like that, so I'd probably just, Yeah. Yeah. I'd probably, like I said, I'd probably be a scribe at a wizard tower, or I'd study, like, magical animals. I'd be a fucking nerd. Yeah. Like I am now. Yeah. I'd just be a dragon. Which is much better. Although if I were, if I, if you were to put me in a D&D world, I'd probably, if I want to be a dragonborn, but I'd probably be a dwarf. Mm. I'm big, burly, and I'm hairy, so. Yeah. Oh, you're you're short, burly, and you're hairy. Yeah. Or a bugbear. Mm. I like bugbears. I, I'm also burly and hairy, but mm-hmm. I'm more than a, and I'm not I'm not that short, but I'm burly and I'm hairy, but I'm uh. I think I more personify hobbits and mm. and and halflings. 
I think that's more the vibe I give off personally. Yep. I, uh, I've got. I certainly got Hobbit feet. I'll tell you that. Yeah, me too. Uh, uh, thank you, anonymous, for the question. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for the question. What I'd like to be is an orc warlord, but ah, uh, uh, I'd like to be a dragonborn wizard. Yeah. I don't know what school of magic I'd specialize in, but I'd want to be a wizard. My magic would be axe. I cast fist. Yeah. But, uh... Oh, God, I'd be a worse Mashal. You would be a worse Mashal, yes. Mm, fun. Okay. Fun. That's that. Uh, if you want to get in contact with one of us directly and not the show, you can find... Well, Kai, you... you I usually go first, but Kai, you go first this time. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kaiju underscore Emperor. That's K-A-I-J-U-E-M-P-E-R-O-R. Uh, you can also find me on Tumblr at Kaiju-Emperor, spelled the exact same way. And those are uh, reblogs, retweets, stuff I like usually, stuff about animation, art, things I like, dumb memes, etc., etc. Uh, if you want anything original from me, or if you like D&D and tabletop games, I also have a side blog on Tumblr called Kai's Tome. It's K-A-I-S-T-O-M-E. And that's where I post anything I make for Dungeons & Dragons, usually my homebrew subclasses and magic items. Uh, Alrighty. I'm hoping to be posting some more stuff there soon. I'm working on some artificer stuff. I'm working on some monk stuff. And I have a lot of ideas for uh, other things. I'm also thinking about working on a book, uh, a supplemental thing called uh, the Warlock Handbook. That'll include uh, some new Warlock patrons, a new, a couple of new types of packs, and some new invocations for Warlock. All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at at TurboHoncho, that's at T-U-R-B-O-H-O-N-C-H-O, that's at TurboHoncho, and that's basically it. Uh, so until next time, don't be a jackass. See you then. Bye!